going behind the creation of the world's most sustainable cookware brand, today on the Low Tox Life podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 283. I'm thrilled to have one of my favourite people, Mark Henry, joining me on the show today. Uh, I love Mark's work. Uh, He founded Solid Techniques, and today we're going deep behind the story of how that came to be. He's an engineer who uh, always has loved innovating. In fact, he tells the story at age three, he woke up before dawn on Christmas morning and fully assembled a tricky powered construction set that his parents thought he might struggle with in the morning. Uh, and you fast forward 40 something years, a metal trade, a couple of degrees, several languages and a string of patents, brands and businesses later. And you could say Mark is feeling quietly confident about his new innovations and the future of Solid Technics. So if you haven't heard me talk about this brand before, if you haven't done the Lotox, Go Lotox program, which, by the way, starts today, if you want to jump in and join us this round, then uh, I can tell you it is one of my favourite brands for the simple fact that this is something once you have invested in, you will never have to buy another frying pan or saucepan of that type. Multi-generation, multi-century guarantee. It's truly sustainable. So not just good quality and going to last a long time, but literally will last until someone melts it down and turns it into something else. Uh, and the reason it's so long lasting, not only in the materials that are chosen, is also in the fact that things are built as single pieces. And Mark's going to talk to that technology and that design uh, element uh, today in the show. But we also have, as is typical when we get together and have a chat, a very philosophical conversation around business, how to design a business as a business owner in the modern world and uh, what to do about this world we live in where a lot of people feel like they're not liking what they see out there, the changes that are happening, the seemingly overpowering nature of hyper-corporatism, late-stage capitalism, whatever you want to call it. So we go down a few uh, tangents about the world as well. So uh, I'm really, really excited to jump into that show. But of course, we have a couple of fantastic offers for you this month that I just want to quickly run you through. You are now into the second week of the Block Blue Light giveaway. Make sure you head to their Instagram. All you have to do is like their Instagram, Block Blue Light, and uh, like the post, tag a couple of friends in the comments to gain an entry into winning their $400 pack of a whole assortment of different things to support your blue light blocking journeys. Now, why do we want to do that? We, of course, want to minimize the amount of blue light we're exposed to, to allow a natural circadian rhythm to do its thing, for the melatonin to rise naturally into the evening, uh, where it cannot function effectively when we are continually exposing ourselves to bright blue light driven lights in the evening time. And even excessively during the daytime, you might work in an office where there are fluorescent lights on during the day in your office space. 
not so great. And you heard me talk about the glasses last week. These can be really helpful topical protective application, if you like, uh, for day or for night, depending on what you go with. But I just wanted to mention this week, one of my favorite products in the range and something we started using a couple of years ago now as our reading lights and our general evening lights. So we do not have blue light on unless we go look in the fridge uh, or um, maybe the over the stove LED while we're cooking. Everything else in the evening around our home is the Sweet Dreams light bulb. This gives a warm amber light, so it's not a full red light, that kind of um, red light district vibe, which some of the uh, some of the products in um, blue light blocking ranges are like. This is more like a, a honey-like hue around your home. It is so relaxing. You can still see everything just fine. You can still read just fine. Flicker-free, low EMF. No mercury, which are all the eco LED light bulbs tend to have. A lot of people don't realize that. And verified independently to emit absolutely no blue light. So I wanted to feature that Sweet Dreams light bulb because for this wonderful month of what are we, May, you have 15% off the range at Block Blue Light with Lotox 15 as your code. And um, I really think you should try a couple of these lights in your living room space or as your bedside light and let me know how you go. They were game changing for us. I am not a night owl anymore. I thought I was a night owl, but actually I naturally fall asleep and get sleepy around 10 o'clock. Uh, and I attribute that in huge part to these beautiful light bulbs for actually allowing my natural sleep cycles to do their thing. So check it out. And my favorite thing about Block Blue Light jumping on and sponsoring the show a couple of times a year is our international listeners can make the most of this as well because they have international shipping options. So Lotox15 is your code, 15% off. Head to Block Blue Light uh, and their website to check out the range and hook yourself up. Now, of course, we also have an incredible offer from BioFirst Official. You would have seen the giveaway. Congrats to the giveaway uh, recipients. They were both very excited and both had actually also made the most of the offer because they were really thrilled to try a new product uh, in both their cases, actually, for eczema for family members. Uh, So I've talked about how the Manuka Skin Saver that they have, it's a $50 product, is absolutely brilliant for people who suffer with eczema or psoriasis, but I also wanted to talk to it in uh, relation to skin damage from the sun, so UV sun damaged skin. So if you've spent too much time in the sun over the years, you've got a lot of blemishes, sunspots, um, uh, the Manuka Skin Saver is actually a fantastic support to manage that care from home and look after your skin and repair some of that damage. Uh, they use a milk thistle oil, which is more bioactive than vitamin E oil. Uh, so if you've tried lots of things and nothing's really worked for that sun-damaged aspect of your skin uh, um, care, then I really think you want to give this a go. I've been using it every now and then. I mentioned last week I used it when I was feeling a bit hivey. Uh, I get a bit histamine at the end of the luteal phase, and uh, thank you, perimenopause. And uh, it was just a, such a great Calm the Farm product. Amazing to learn that it's good for UV-damaged skin as well. So when you buy the Manuka Skin Saver at $50, all you have to do is put it in your cart. Then if you check out your cart, you 
you'll see that automatically a um, self-heal salve has been added to your cart for free, valued at $30. So it's a fantastic offer. And the self-heal salve, think of it as a bit of an SOS topical first aid, bites, bumps, uh, aggravations if you're gardening and you touch a plant that gives you a little bit of a, a reaction. Fantastic SOS skin saver. So a really great deal. You don't have to press in any special codes. You just pop the Manuka skin saver in your cart via the link in the show notes or the bio link on Instagram, and you will automatically have the self-heal salve added to your cart. And then a final reminder, all year round, you have 10% off with Oz Climate through their amazing range of dehumidifiers and air filters. I just had a little blank, uh, even though I'm looking at my Winix air filter right now. Uh, and that code is Lotox Life, and you have that all year round uh, as they're a wonderful major sponsor of the show. That one's for Aussies only, as is the BioFirst. Okay, thank you so much to all those wonderful people who support our show and give you offers to help your low-tox swaps be a little easier on the pocket. Now let's dive into this wonderful conversation with Mark Henry from Solid Technics. Hello, Mark. How are you? Hey, Alex. I'm great. And how are you? I am excellent. Uh, Last time we got to catch up, it was in person. Uh, which is definitely my preference when I get to catch up with people that I think are awesome. Uh, but I'm very excited to have you on the show, Mark. I can't believe we've made it to the near seven-year mark and you haven't been on. So that's being rectified yeah. today. Wow. And uh, we are Pretty talking good. about, yeah, we're talking about all sorts of good things. When we start with talking about sustainability, though, I know you have an interesting personal story Um from a personal perspective, but also from your profession as a designer of things. Um, Can you share with the listeners today how you came to be curious about design for sustainability or for regeneration? Oh, yeah. Wow. How far back to go. Mm. (laughs) You know, um, I've been pulling things apart my whole life and that's why I became a mechanical engineer. You know, I, uh, just the way things worked fascinated me and that's not unusual a lot of people are interested in that i think what got me then more excited about the sustainability side is when i started to manufacture things you know when i started to get serious i was still in university doing my double degree engineering and business while i was designing things and and particularly chef knives i've been hand making knives my whole life and when i got into the science of that at university and started to talk to the chefs in more detail. And, you know, what got me interested was the the products that they were naming as the best in the world looked like engineering dinosaurs to me. Wow. And and what was it? Like what aspects were you seeing that looked like dinosaurs? Oh, you know, the way they were made hadn't changed for 800 years except for the addition of plastics. So, you know, the way the blade and the tang was forged, uh, then um, um, scales or handle pieces were added each side. That, that's been done for 800 years. Rivets, um, they were hand, um, you know, uh, uh, hammered rivets in the beginning and then they became machine rivets. But um, that basic, um, and even the shapes of the handles, that's, that got me interested too. 
a, a handle shape that was opposite to what it should be to resist cutting forces. Mm. And I studied the history behind that. And then it all became clear that the history had been continued through many generations of manufacturers, but not necessarily researching mechanical engineers, looking at the <laughs> fundamentals. Wow. You know? It makes me think of like trying to make women give birth lying down or, you know, stuff like that, that it just makes absolutely no structural sense when you understand the workings of the human body and how a a baby comes out. But because it's a tradition and because it's that we do this because this is always the way we've done this, when it's actually not always, always the way we've done this. Yeah, and a lot of ways we're going back full circle. Yeah. Yeah, You know, the, the people who are thinking these things through and finding a lot of the old wisdom is still the best wisdom. And, uh, and of course, we've made a lot of advances and we can't throw them all out, but we've also gone a long way backwards in some of the biggest issues, you know, look at the damage to the planet. You know, we, we, you know, it always, um, yeah, I get passionate when people say, well, look how clever humans are. We've Mm. uh, built, We've built cities and machines and all these uh, gadgets and now the information technology, artificial intelligence and robots are coming and things like that. We must be really smart and much smarter than all the other species on Earth. Mm. But in the really long run, the species that is unsustainable is not the smart species. Mm. So if everything else was in balance and we came along and upset the balance and made the planet uninhabitable, that would prove to be one of the dumbest species, I think. You know, so, I'm we got say time I'm right to change there with that. you. Yeah, and we do have time to change that. It's part of why I wanted to bring you on uh, because you have, while you have a beautiful business, which might be this tangible thing that people go, oh, yeah, that's Mark from Solid Techniques. Um, at the same time, you're a big picture thinker. And I think big picture thinking is what we require to move into. A new stage. It was actually um, one of my favorite, favorite comedians and actors of all time, Hugh Laurie, shared on Twitter the other day, the future is bright. Unfortunately, we're not headed that way. <laughs> I was like, oh my <laughs> God, that is so true. Yeah, it is so it true. It really is bright. Uh, but if we look at everything we're doing, we are not headed that way. So no, and we're not going to make it if we keep doing what we're doing. It's yeah. pretty obvious to anyone who who has even a, 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 a grasp, a small grasp of what's going on, but we can make it enough. The problem is enough people need to get excited about it and really want to make the change for it to become a real movement, a movement that's really going to have influence. And I can see that that's becoming a strong possibility and that's why I'm not completely pessimistic about the future because... I see the change in the new generations, you know, the old generations who, you know, post-war when it was all about consumption and greed and, you know, feather your own nest and dog eats dog, zero sum outcomes, you know. Um, the, the young generations, all that stuff looks ridiculous and dinosaur to them, you know. Um, so they're coming through. Uh, and, you know, we all want change fast, but humans don't change fast and it takes generations. Um, I think that the, the evidence is piling up so fast that the kids 
are going to be a little more urgent than we were in our comfortable suburbs and with our flat screen TVs and our cars and all our uh, distractions that prove to be uh, the things causing the damage. The kids won't stand for it. So we've got, we got a chance when they start to take power and the dinosaurs are starting to die off. Mm, I almost think that the hardship of World War II for the West uh, specifically created this um, drunken desire for convenience and ease and uh, all the good things, almost as like the human spirit just needed payback for going through something so horrific so unstable and you wanted to just that lizard brain just wanted everything to be as safe and easy as possible but humans aren't healthy and nor is our planet when everything is safe and easy Um, because safe easy also equals convenient also equals cheap and then therefore um we know what that looks like damage exactly yeah Yeah, yeah i want to bring it back to um, talking about your life as an engineer. So you're a student, you're noticing these knives, you're noticing plastics in the handles and a few other bits and pieces. How do you then get to a point where you're comfortable um, starting a business rather than working for someone else? Like why did you feel that you uh, needed to be the one running the show? Yeah, uh, probably because I'm, basically unemployable anyway yeah and that started you know I was born like that and that's why at school I was either you know and my my scores were good but uh, my attitude was fairly bad um, because I was expected to sit in that desk and go at their pace and um, things that just didn't interest me enough except for the things that really did and then I excelled, you know, and so um, that started young. And then uh, when it did come time to work, I saw, you know, these uh, these people who had been on the treadmill, on the hamster wheel for 40 plus years, some of them. And um, I thought, that's it. All my worst fears are confirmed. And um, so... Uh, that made me basically unemployable. I finished my apprenticeship I, before I went to university. I was a mature age student. I didn't start university until 23, age 23. Um, before that, I did an apprenticeship four years as a fitter machinist. So I had a trade and I somehow stuck that out. Uh, but that was it for me. I mean, there was no chance after that of being a part of any corporate machine. Um, and then the same thing now applies to uh, the way I treat my staff. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So how does it look different to be a solid techniques employee? Uh, They're happier. (laughs) That's one side. Yeah. And the, the autonomy they have. So I recruit more based on values, shared values and character than on experience. Oh, because 100%. I can mentor. Yeah. I can mentor, I can train, I can do all those things. And I'm patient enough to wait for people to hit their stride. But if they start with unaligned in values and character, then there's no point, even if they're productive, you know, life's too short. For me, 
to uh, be surrounded by people who aren't aligned with my vision, um, you know, and, and uh, so I'm pretty, I've always been clear about that. So, but in a practical sense, what it means is they come into the office when they want. Um, I rarely go to the office. We've got offices on the Sunshine Coast. Um, they, uh, and it's based around meetings. Okay, yeah, let's hang out today or, you know, um, a couple of times this week. Um, they can work from home when they like. They can choose their hours. They, I'm happy for them to flex and take half a day at the beach as long as I don't know about it <laughs> and I don't feel <laughs> like yeah. I should be there too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But well, the if the work's too. getting done, the work's getting done, right? I'm exactly the exactly, same yeah. with my team. But the reason, and, and the reason it gets done, and I don't need to worry about it, is I know how inspired they are by our vision and how committed mm. they are. So they tend not to want to go to the beach and lay on the beach because there's too much to do to further our vision and to get their job done and for them to keep that job that they're happy to have and to be well paid and to have the flexibility and all those things so it's so different to the old model but I wouldn't have it any other way because I don't expect people to live uh, in slavery if I won't Mm, yeah well said absolutely well said Um, now obviously solid techniques is famous for its pan range you've got the stainless steel noni you've got the um cast iron you've now got the pre-seasoned which i know so many people like oh thank god they've done it for me um but um i want to dig behind i guess why pans you obviously became interested in the sustainability piece um was there a moment between the knives and the pans where sustainability just kept creeping further and further high up your priority list as a designer oh yeah and in fact uh well actually that's what I was going to say way back when we talked about history and I was a kid I was interested in the durability of products because I saw things fail for reasons that they shouldn't have failed and it it should have been possible to design them to be multi-century durable you know look at knives with you know the handles open up and water gets in the gaps and germs get in the gaps and rivets pop out because they're multi-piece so I designed a one-piece knife and solved all that with the right handle shape and the right material in one piece so so solved all those issues you know it sounds easy when I say it like that but it was a lot of research <laughs> but I've got it you know I got yeah. that done and, and, and people loved it and then when and particularly the chefs so that's what gave me the leg up and that's what worked and uh but anyway while that company boomed Fury Technics I took it to the USA in 2005 and opened a subsidiary in San Francisco and it went crazy it was uh it exploded because of celebrity enthusiasm and we had a lot of airtime in the USA and we're in all the big stores and the good thing was that they were true professional products that were also multi-generation durable you know one piece and so I felt good about that. The uh, problem is I was involved in a type of commerce, traditional commerce, that I wasn't happy with. So, you know, bank, bank finance, investors, um, you know, I was CEO of a large company, never wanted to be CEO. I wanted to be the creator, the founder and the development engineer, the designer. 
but not the CEO. So I sold it in 2008 after and sold it at a good time. Um, but that was to buy my freedom and to start and to properly uh, set up the foundation for the second half of my life. So now I have founded Solid Technics in 2014. So that six-year gap I spent, I started in France and I had the time to sit down and write a manifesto for the second half of my life. And that was mostly about regeneration of not just myself, but giving back and being of service uh, for the second half of my life was more important to me than making money or anything else. Um, so I had the time to re think it through so clearly that I wrote it down in black and white so I could be 100% clear what those values were. And, um, and most of it was not for publication. It was my personal thing. But one chapter uh, related to the future of business was published in a, in a business uh, book. And so um, at some point I'll share that more widely because it's all about that new future of commerce that isn't zero sum and isn't dog eat dog and doesn't exploit people and, and uh, doesn't damage the earth. And uh, so I thought I figured out a way to do that and uh, I wasn't going to start any new business until I figured that out. And um, so meanwhile, I solved the issue of making a one-piece pan in iron and stainless steel um, in wrought iron and wrought stainless steel, not cast iron, but wrought iron, so worked iron. And that was so different. And what motivated me to do that was those one-piece knives I made, uh, all the chefs would say, that's great, now we need a one-piece pan because our pans keep falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you just make a one-piece pan? I said, well, there's already cast iron, but the problem with that is it cracks and it's really heavy and it's not a very good conductor and all those issues, difficult to season. So um, and I said, well, it'd be great if we could make them from wrought iron, but the way that's been done is by heating up a billet to red hot and hammering it out with a hammer for hours on end. And, you know, that's not, <laughs> not real practical these days. But it's actually been done that way for over 3,000 years. Yeah, I was going to say, the old blacksmiths of the Middle Ages hammering away yeah. and, yeah. Yeah. Well, the start of the Iron Age, that was the only way to make an iron pan was to literally hammer it out. That, you know, obviously it's not viable these days, but I figured out a way to do that with machines. And so that made it viable, and that's why you can buy a 100% Australian-made wrought iron pan for $100 or $150, you know. Um, made by Australians with Australian materials in Sydney with all the environmental protections, with all the ethical treatment of the staff, with good wages, with, you know, living in a nice environment. So we can compete because of this new method of making pans that I patented. And if I didn't do that, if I didn't patent this new method and if I did nothing really interesting in terms of yeah, innovation in cookware, then there's no way we wouldn't have even got started because obviously there's 
cheaper inputs, like every industry, there's a whole range of prices. Um, and obviously in cookware, you can go to a supermarket and get a $15 pan coated in something that's kind of nonstick. And, you know, if, if money is the main thing, then that's why they're popular. They're cheap. Uh, but they're also toxic and disposable. Yeah. And so, let's you know. talk about that. When we talk about Australia and maybe America as two examples of just how much of this cheap pan stuff we're buying and how much toxicity it's causing. Oh, yeah, the numbers are frightening and mm. bigger than people realise mm. and the damage is bigger than most people realise. Uh, recently, it's been given a bit of uh, media, finally, um, yeah. with the movies that have come out, a really good documentary and a really good movie. Um, Dark Waters, whole, for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. Yeah. Dark Waters, worth a look. Mm. And um, there's another good documentary on the whole saga that's excellent. Uh, the name escapes me now. Um, but it's all over the internet, just Google mm. it, you know. But yeah. it's to do with, and it's only one specific, even though it's a, a gigantic one, um, the problem's bigger worldwide. Uh, like, for example, in Australia, the um, a conservative estimate is 1.2 million pans every year going into our landfill. This disposable nonstick pans that can't be recycled um, are going into it. That's 1.2 million disposable pans into the landfill every year just in Australia. Yeah. In the USA, it's at least 10 times that amount. Um, but one, and you imagine worldwide. But anyway, one of the um, uh, fortunate things, see, we're the only production cookware manufacturer in Australia where it, there, are, there are no others because, well, they disappeared when all the imports came. And, and, and the Aussies were still making the same things that the uh, offshore factories had copied. Yeah, and then like for like, it's like, well, I'm sorry, but I can buy it cheaper there and run my business here, yeah. pay my salespeople yeah. a bit more, yada, yada. Yeah, we know how this all yeah. goes. Yeah, yeah, and it's happened in almost every industry, as we know. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's one of my submissions is to, one of my missions is to help bring Australian manufacturing back just by inspiring other manufacturers to do what I've done, you know, start with innovation, making something that's so noticeably different and better than the imported stuff that a certain segment of the population will be happy to spend a little extra to have that quality, to have that um, sustainability, to have the health um, benefits of a product uh, while manufacturing and have local capability for something that's fairly essential. Absolutely. Care. And I think if you can help people, that's something I'm really passionate about in our education uh, courses is you help people make the mindset shift towards saving and being a little bit more precious with your money for just a little bit longer and then getting the really good, durable, fantastic thing. And then because it's the really good, durable, fantastic thing, 
it's more precious, therefore you look after it more, therefore it also lasts longer from that perspective and therefore you actually save in the long run. And the best part about that is it's a two-pronged saving for yourself and for the planet. The piece I struggle with, though, is the fact that so much of the world relies on us, people like you and me, buying a ton of stuff um, for them to function, even though barely um, in terms of their their lifestyle from what they get paid, say Bangladesh or India making clothes, China making plastic stuff, um, whatever. Um, And if we do achieve critical mass of trend of people starting to think this more sustainable, regenerative way, where does that leave all of them? Yeah. And I I genuinely am concerned about that aspect of slowing everything down. Like I think we can't, it's kind of like wanting to move away from coal mines but not giving coal miners a really solid path to something new that means they're not going to feel forgotten in the change, right? No, I know what you mean, but that's why... Um, things can't happen overnight. Yeah. You know, there's a transition period that that's needed and that transition to work and for the most amount of people to benefit and to be happy in the end, it will take time for people to shut down their industries, get retrained, get into something else. You know, it's not just the offshore factories and what are they going to do for uh, income, it's also locally. You know, what What if, what, you know, and there's a, look how many Australians are employed in importing and in retail and in selling things that are damaging the planet. Well, if you suddenly outlaw all those, then it's a disaster. But if you change people's preferences so they start to buy the things, you know, they vote with their wallet. So exactly what you're doing with low-tox life, you know, people start to go, oh, I won't buy the mass-produced this or that, you know, imported with all the chemicals. I'll think about something more durable and something less toxic. And um, if they're spending their money on those things, that's what the manufacturers are going to make, even if those manufacturers really don't care one bit about the environment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's like yeah. Eminent, a Mars company doesn't give a toss about uh, taking petroleum out of food colouring um, for their uh, candies, but we did, and so they did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's got to be driven by the money mm. to do that. It's got to be driven by the people changing their preferences, and that's why I say I'm not going to change the world. My little company and and what I'm doing. It's just cookware and now knives and kitchen tools. We're expanding into again, but that's not going to change the world. But our ideas, hopefully, and our example will inspire other people who really can change the world on a bigger scale. Yeah, that's it. And you, you, it's more about influencing cultural norms at the end of the day. And you can do that yeah. with a little tiny seed. And, yeah. uh, and then that person influences a couple of their mates. And then someone else says, oh, no, you don't want to buy one of those. Come and get one of these pants. I swear to God, I bought it like, you know, six years ago. It's the first time in my life I've had a pant that's lasted longer than two years. And those kinds of things start to create more normal, new, more normal norms. Yeah, sorry. Not very good English, but, yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, Well, yeah, there's that. And I've just, yeah, 
seen it over and over and I'm old enough now to to see cycles come and go and to see the trends and uh, to see the underlying core issues behind all the fluff, to see the trends that are developing behind all the fluff. And um, that's why people sometimes say, I've got a crystal ball. It's, it's not that I'm really observant and I don't believe anything I see once. I don't believe anything until I've seen thousands of data points that show me the core truth behind it and the core trends. And I know that these trends, I'm quite convinced that these trends of generational change, you know, the support of the kids for uh, a more sustainable future, the, uh, the rejection of uh, work slavery, uh, even as simple as in our industry, the rejection of, of products that do harm, even if they're cheap and convenient. See, that's going to continue. We're only seeing the start of that. So it just makes sense to me because I've kept my eyes open and seen a lot of data points, I think. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Um, so when it comes to thinking about that multi-generation uh, durability, how, is it hard to design for that in terms of like, I mean, you've been going for six years. Is there anything you've noticed in those first few years that you're like, ah, oh, crap, we need to improve this aspect if we really want to fulfil that mission? Or was it really just a, from the beginning you just knew because you're an engineer that the types of materials you needed to use? Yeah, I've got to say humbly uh, we nailed it from the very first product, Alex. Boom. What well done. <laughs> <laughs> and it's simple, you know. And mm. people see our products and they look so simple and they just work. They're not high tech to look at. But if people knew the, uh, the um, well, the accumulated knowledge and energy and time I've put into developing this stuff really my whole life. Like, you know, one piece stands. I've been working on that problem for over 20 years because yeah. that's when the chef had uh, to tell me 25 years ago, hey, you need to make, so I started to think about it and trying to find a way. So that had been percolating down for two plus decades. So there's a lot more goes into it than meets the eye. Then the technology to actually get it done is way more involved than it seems. But in the end, there's a simple product. And the easiest, you know, when you ask, um, have we, do we think we've really achieved this, this type of uh, sustainability and durability with the products? Um, we offer our written warranty always makes people laugh. It's multi-century. Yeah. Our, our warranty is multi-century and first reaction, oh, that's a funny marketing gimmick because you're not going to be around in centuries to prove mm. it. <laughs> you know? But yeah. it's obvious to me as a mechanical engineer, if I'm making a product like a pan from one single piece of a material that can't crack, it's it's a malleable material, so you can squish it and hammer it back out, whatever you want to do. Um, it won't crack and it's one piece. So the only way it can fail is if you physically wear through it over the generations and centuries. And our products would take at least a century, I think uh, three, five centuries to physically wear them out. They're one piece of such a durable, malleable material. 
So um, it's really obvious to me, and if people are really curious, I just say something like that and then leave it up to them or or, or go ask another engineer, get another opinion on that, mm. you know. So <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's engineering. It's not a marketing gimmick, but it gets people's attention and, and helps them think about the issues. Absolutely. Product versus, and you know. a lot of people, just to ask a really a couple of really practical questions, worry about different types of uh, like materials on different types of cooktops. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick rundown? What works where? When can we use solid Technics pans? Obviously, you've got the different couple of materials to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, in terms of care for the cooktops, you mean more Exactly. So. People are, like, terrified yeah. of putting a cast iron pan on a Ceramic flat cooktop or, a, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Well, what it is, um, the our pans, as tough as they are and strong as they are, they're still way softer than a glass top or a ceramic top. So, yeah, if people ever panic about what's happening to their uh, glass top, that if they clean it properly, they'll find out that what's deposit, what looks like fine scratches or damage are deposits that are removable. So any oil from cooking, and then you heat up that and stick a pan on top of it, then you've got a band of really caked on stuff that's much like the seasoning that's inside an iron pan so the question comes up for us then i say well the other thing is that if your pan is seasoned it's way softer than the glass so there's nothing that's going to happen to your cooktop the only thing that really damages cooktops quickly is cast iron pans that are enamel coated because enamel coating is vitreous glass it's glass Coloured glass that they melt on you know, the powder first and then heat it up and fuse it into glass around metal. Now that's the same hardness as your cooktop, so that does a fair bit of damage if it's enamelled on the base. Got it. So it's the enamelled base cookware that you need to worry about much more than a cast yeah. iron pan. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and even cast iron, it might, you know, they're heavy and they're bumpy. Mm. But those bumps are quite soft. They're way softer than the glass, mm. you know, unless there's sand still caught in there, and that's pretty rare these days. The sand can do damage, but that's pretty rare. So no, nothing to worry about there. The other tip I'd have for uh, modern cooktops is when you've uh, got induction is to try to buy the best quality you can because the cheap ones have got very small fields of flux. You know, they might put a ring... The, the ring they print on the cooktop looks like that. Yeah. But the actual magnetic flux that's driving the heat is only that big. And um, so the centre of the pan gets very hot and the outside doesn't. Right. And with an iron pan, if you preheat long enough, that's kind of okay. But you'll always be putting too much energy into the middle and it's not spread out over the whole pan. So, yeah, it's, it really is the case where, and it's getting better all the time, better value all the time induction mm. but the older cheaper stuff is the nastiest stuff for uh, cookware and for even cooking yeah and can you talk to me about the noni range one of the best things about that and i always rave about the tray that we co-created a, a couple of years ago gosh maybe four years ago now i think it was it's yeah, crazy yeah. um my favorite thing about the noni stainless steel is the fact that you can do a tray of, say, biscuits 
And for the first time in my life, even though most of the ovens that I've worked with and um, and I've worked with quite a few, there's always a hot spot. But I find that the Noni stainless steel protects you from hot spots. Everything just seems so much more even than the average pan. Can you talk to me about how you create that evenness from a technical perspective? Yeah, well, there's a lot in it, of course, but in simple terms, we've got a highly conductive monoblock of material that's mm. three millimetres thick. Mm-hmm. And when you compare that with other baking pans or trays on the market, they yeah. might be one millimetre of terrible material that's not very conductive. Then they often coat it in something that's also uh, not only toxic and disposable, but also non-conductive. So you're battling um, to have even heat. And so one of the things you'll find, not just when baking, but if you cook with our, our Noni stainless steel pans, is they cook like iron, but they mm-hmm. maintain like stainless steel, and that's because they're not normal stainless steel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. every other pan on the market, just about, is made from nickel-based stainless steel. Yeah. You know, and plus all the layers to make that work because it's such a poor conductor. So they have layers of aluminium or copper or whatever to make it conduct and get through that layer that's almost an insulator of nickel stainless steel. The reason they use nickel stainless steel is the same stuff, same stuff that's used in your uh, uh, tabletop forks and knives, your cutlery uh, mm. bench tops and, and kettles and things. It's easy to form and easy to polish bright. Mm. So the manufacturers love it. The retailers love it. Um, the problem is that it's nickel is what kills the conductivity. Mm. So and it creates in, the unevenness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you know, it's harder to get the heat through. Um, but the other thing is they leach nickel into food. Yeah, and a lot of people have issues with nickel and don't even realise it, not only from a, a heavy metal build-up perspective, um, most people can handle having a bit of nickel in their system, but uh, I think it's about one in ten, right, that end up with skin conditions and allergic reactivity. Yeah. Yeah, mm. and the allergies are annoying, but I mean they're not life-threatening or anything. I don't like them about nickel stainless steels, and that's why we don't use them. But mm. potentially that that long-term accumulation, uh, there's big um, concerns about that. And that's why in Europe, um, uh, nickel-coated um, vessels for cooking are outlawed in yeah. in cooking production because they're concerned about the leaching of nickel into food. Another um, example of the European Union's precautionary principle and independent government-funded bodies that research things yeah. versus private industry just being able to bring you all the data and say, yep, safe, we've tested it, let's go. Huge, huge mm. difference. And you can see that's why Europe often leads mm. in uh, these things of health concern because they're not in the pocket of the corporations. And plus, culturally, people aren't inclined to believe the marketing materials, you know. Mm. Um, if something if something is, is um, guaranteed safe by a corporate scientist... <laughs> Yeah. That's believed in some cultures. It's not believed in the whole world. No, absolutely right. Um, so How's my camera going? You're going to end up looking at my belly button because my high-tech um, 
<laughs> my tech tripod here, Alex, is starting to fail me. Oh, it's all good. Um, I had my I had a meeting yesterday with my laptop on a bunch of towels. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. My high yeah. tech tripod Super high tech. is my coffee coffee grinder with a lump of blue tack on top. So I think the blue tack starting to fade in the wall. <laughs> I warmth. love it. I think that would actually be a really hilarious coffee table book, like 101 ways to to have a meeting and then like people's real life pictures of um, ad hoc ways that they've propped up various devices to, to uh, attend a meeting. Grammar is in the background, but you should see the foreground. Yeah, I've got <laughs> And because it's a coffee grinder, I've got this beautiful smell of coffee keeping me alive. Oh, well, that's the good. There you go. Despite the rough night. Uh. Yeah, nice. Um, so I wanted to ask you before we finished up, you have obviously lived in a few countries now and you've spent time obviously in Australia growing up, but also have lived a good chunk of time in the US, in France. Um, what made you decide to return home and base your business here and do everything from here? I know for you there was uh, a farming component, which I'm, I'm curious to, to hear more about as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, you know, the expression coming full circle, that's what it feels like. And I kind of knew it. I knew that the, the timing was right. My finishing school was feeling complete enough. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, when I was growing up in Australia, what a what an awesome country to grow up in. It's, it's a kid's paradise if you're allowed to be out, you know, in our generation, we were in the bush all the time. You know? We lived on hobby farms and so we had animals and, you know, we were doing all that in the bush. And then, um, but, you know, I started to... Uh, um, almost self-parent from a young age you know I just knew I wanted more and I need to discover more in life and so I read a lot and I questioned a lot um, when it came to adulthood I knew that I needed to leave the country to find the answers to what I wanted to find and that was uh, the cultural differences and why why do so many people around us all believe the same thing in say this country or this uh, this um, thing, but then you go to another completely different country and they believe completely opposite. And whether it's politics or religion or simple habits, daily life, you know, or the way they treat family and community versus individualism and, and things like that fascinated me as a kid um, because I was being told by the adults that we know the right way our society, our religion, our politics is the one true way. And that never that never sounded correct to me. Uh, so I wanted to find out as many different perspectives from around the world as I could to, again, find that core thread through the middle. And I still, you know, I've always done that automatically. And um, but I really felt that I needed to live in other cultures to understand them to answer those bigger questions. So I did my time, I did a lot of time and you know all the languages I learned and all the things I saw, not just you know uh, running around with a camera doing tourist things, but living in a culture and understanding a culture, you know. And then- It's such, um, it's such a gift, isn't it? It really is such a gift. Mm. 
like you can do it quasi on purpose as you did to because you felt like you needed to understand more perspectives. For me, it was far less conscious because I was born into a French, Mauritian, British family with, you know, especially with Mauritian people, mum's generation where you could finally travel um, by plane and go to uni and Europe and all that. So we're everywhere. We've got several people in the States, in some conservative states, in some more liberal states. We've got people everywhere. Mauritius, predominantly Indian, predominantly 10 people living in two-bedroom houses in little cement shacks. You know, wow. uh, yeah. like crazy yeah, cultural cultural fusions. And yeah. I genuinely believe, like, when you try to understand who you are and how you got here, like, we, I think when you're middle-aged, it's a, a really introspective yeah. time to try and um, yeah. gain it more clarity. Be. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think, oh, wow, I think I'm a centrist find the overlaps, don't focus on the differences person because yeah. of the melting pot of exposures I've had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why you and I, we, we, we see that in each other because we don't get distracted by the outlier ideas or the outlier this and that. We wait to see the, the true core of things and then um, base our beliefs and, and our values and the things that motivate us are based on those. But anyway, and then, yeah, we could go on for our, that's a huge passion of mine, that um, self-education and and also uh, believing almost none of what you're told from any one source. Mm. And, uh, and Yeah, well, because self-education has become a hazard in itself because yeah. in part Ooh. of how much is able to be out there uncensored but also yeah. how much is censored. Like it's both. Yeah. So You've got to know how to sort really through it. Really interesting times. Yeah. yeah, how to sort through it. So, you know, and, and uh, but in a, in a practical sense, I was there in France and loving life and it was a bit too easy, you know, and, and a bit too wonderful. And, uh, uh, but hard to run a company like Sec- uh, Solid Techniques when it's growing like this from France, you know, great staff in Australia made it possible and a lot of travel. I didn't really like the travel, but got it done. I knew I had to move back. And then the pandemic finally motivated me. I could see that was going to be uh, not much fun um, where we were living in France. So uh, let's go back. And the farm is full circle because of the childhood. You know, yeah, living in beautiful. those cities, in those countries all those years, was a ton of fun and I learned a lot but it wasn't truly me it wasn't the kid so I think um, the kid the kid in the end never disappears but some of us uh, have trouble um, re-finding the kid and the kid is the pure it's not the layers of what you were told you are and what you should be it's how you were born there's nothing more pure than that so the closer we can do to get back to that and to use those lessons and that they're not even, you know, a lot of those uh, things aren't able to be verbalised or written. You just feel them and you know them. And so being on a farm that we're using regenerative principles with the animals and the 
food forests, the permaculture food forests. To me, nothing feels more right than that for the future that's coming. So, you know, that's, that's my passion to uh, then integrate solid techniques and the farm because we've got an epic big uh, workshop up the back here. Yeah, um, can't wait to come make, see it. Yeah, come and check it out. I make mm. my prototypes, but I want to open it up. We've got a, a forge back there. We can forge knives. We can make things, you know, um, and we can uh, go hug some cows and <laughs> chickens and, you know, and do all those things and just the natural beauty of the forest here and, and the farm itself. I want to open it up, starting with the um, our supporters, the Solid Techniques Lovers Group. Yeah, and my gosh, you have the most fantastic supporters of pretty much yeah. any Lotox brand I've ever come across. They're so They're loyal strong. to you guys. It's very, very passionate. Strong. They mm. share our vision, and I say it all the time, we're building this thing together, and it's no joke. It's, you know, um, I wouldn't be here without them. They wouldn't have these products and without us. So it really is uh, a beautiful synergy, but I want to bring them to the farm to see how it can be integrated the concepts beautiful mark yeah. i could chat to you all day you know that um and uh and <laughs> i really i really appreciate this uh conversation namely because yes it's fantastic that you make this wonderful cookware um that you're going back to your knife making roots as well and expanding in tools and and extra bits and pieces for people to fall in love with and make their lives better. But your big picture vision is really what um, makes you the extraordinary human you are. So I really appreciate your work and um, and for joining me on the show today so that we could share yeah. a little bit under the hood instead of just uh, talking about the, we, you know, we're all big fans of solid techniques, but I think to, to yeah. see why people really do what they do is always such a, a lovely thing to be able to share with people so thank you yeah thanks alex and you know it's a mutual admiration society i love <laughs> the impact. well you and your character um you know so much rings true but the impact you're having on society you know like you say that from little stones thrown in the pond the ripples spread out you imagine the ripples you're making with your the size of your following and with your important messages so the utmost respect for what you're doing uh, and not just because all that's great and big impact, but because I know it's not easy. It's a difficult uh, thing to do to yeah, be different true. Yeah, to everyone sure else. Is. Sure is. Yeah, I think Brene Brown shared that research, right? She says uh, uh, yeah. in, in her research, the single most difficult thing a human can do is counteract to what the cultural norm is around them. Yeah, and only certain people can do it. I don't recommend it for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not for the faint-hearted. Well, it's certainly easier now, 12 years in, but uh, first starting Lotox Life back in 2009, I can Ooh. confidently say that most people thought I was absolutely nuts. So yeah, there you go. too far ahead of the curve, but they're <laughs> catching up. And you'll move on to the next thing, challenge them again, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yep, that's, that's it. Absolutely. Have a beautiful yeah. day, Mark, and thank you so much once you again. Too. All right, Alex, talk to you soon. 
Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27, about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.